Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40. Page 1607, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. This is God's word giving to us, given to us, his people, for our good. Please give your attention to its reading. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about twelve, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, this was a, a fairly normal week this past week in our arena of American politics, which means it was highly contentious, confusing, filled with arguing and name-calling, and also filled with politicians overstating reality. I, was, uh, I read a quote later in the week that startled me, and a member of Congress said this the day after Something had happened where uh, he felt that his political party had won a great victory in an evening session in Congress. He said this, Last night proved, once again, that there is no anxiety or sadness or fear you feel right now that cannot be cured by political action. It takes about probably two seconds to see how naive a view of reality that is. Imagine going into a A middle school or a high school even. Simple examples of finding 14, 15, 16-year-old students who uh, are struggling with their self-image and all the pressures that they feel from those around them and trying to make sense of who they are. How can their sadness, fear, or anxiety be cured by such things? Imagine going through a hospital and going to each and every room and, and telling people who are 
struggling with sickness and their families and close friends, that all of their fears can be squashed by today's political process. Silly, isn't it? But the comment of this man proves to us perhaps how important it is or how much of a need there is, a crying up within all of us to have an answer for the fears, anxieties, and death and suffering that touches each and every human life. It also highlights for us that all human life at one time is going to be in a mode of crisis. We think of the story of the Philippian jailer from Acts 16. We looked at that earlier today. When he realizes the power of God, what does he say? What must I do to be saved? So imagine, in light of all of those things, that there is a God who is sovereign, a God who is in control of all of our problems. But then also imagine that this God who is sovereign and in control is a compassionate and caring and loving Savior who desires to come and address the very root of the problem which causes our fears and anxieties and worries. Well, imagine no more. Luke's account of the Savior is written to make us certain That Jesus is the one solution that actually provides the single answer that this congressman was looking for. The single answer that we so long for in this world of confusion and fear. We see the compassion and the grace and the power of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you just believe, he will make you share in the eternal blessings that he gives to his own As we go through this story, pay attention to a couple of things that we will see. We'll see a man of significance, a woman of shame, a faith that saves, and a hope that satisfies. A man of significance, a woman of shame, a faith that saves, and a hope that satisfies. The story begins with the return of Jesus from the land of the Gerasenes. This is a Gentile territory. And yet, this Gentile territory, when Jesus entered, uh, he worked a great miracle, but they rejected him. They asked him to leave. Jesus showed his power, and he showed how, in a sense, their land had been claimed by the legion of demons that was inside of this man. Jesus offers freedom and liberty, but the Gerasenes asked him to leave. So Jesus has calmed the storm on the sea. He has landed on the other side, been rejected, and now he heads back. And there's a reception awaiting Jesus upon his arrival, isn't there? And it's about as different as it could get from the experience that he had in last week's passage in the land of the the Gerasenes. For there's an entire crowd waiting for him at the shore. This shows us the excitement and the fervor that Jesus has created all throughout Galilee. People are very eager to follow Jesus and to see all of the things that he does. But is the zeal of these Galileans coming from the right place? Or is it zeal without knowledge? A different way to put it would be this. Do all of these people get excited and follow Jesus because they want to see and experience his miraculous healing powers? Or do they follow Jesus because they understand what he is teaching about the kingdom of God? What Luke is showing us is that it's really more of the former, isn't it? These people follow Jesus around because they want to see his miraculous healing power. They want to see what it is that he can do, all of his signs. Thus, as Jesus reaches the shore, we see 
a startling thing happened. Most of Luke's accounts have something that's a bit jolting, and here is no exception. There's a religious leader, a ruler in the synagogue, synagogue who falls at the feet of Jesus. And this is not what we have come to expect from the Jewish religious leaders, is it? Someone falling at the feet of Jesus. And this man's name is Jairus. This is a a Hebrew name. And it means God enlightens or God arouses, which will end up, of course, being fitting in this story. God has the power to arouse. But we see that it comes from a place of belief. This man falls down at the feet of Jesus and is pleading with him to come to his house for a very desperate and sad reason. His young daughter is sick and dying. Thus Jesus sets out on his way and and Luke tells us that at this point the crowds are squeezing in upon Jesus, so much so that he can hardly breathe. And it seems to suggest that these crowds are, are, are getting filled with excitement. There's a buzz in the crowd because they know that Jesus is about to go do something miraculous. He's going to show his power again. And the impression that the beginning of this story leaves upon us is that this is a very important task for Jesus to carry out. If Jesus can heal this young girl, this daughter of the synagogue ruler, think about what it will do for his reputation. This kind of mentality, seeing the influence of people and and, and thinking about how we can capitalize upon their influence, that tends to grip us uh, a lot of the time, doesn't it? We even think about the kingdom of God in this way. We think that the kingdom of God would be so helped if certain famous people would just join themselves to it. How many times have we heard about celebrities who will give somewhat vague stories about finding God, finding uh, the, the truth, the answer that they've always been looking for, and we get excited thinking about uh, what could happen to the kingdom of God if these people really have come to his saving knowledge of Christ, only oftentimes to have their apparent conversion fade away within months. The point is this, ultimately God does not need a king, a president, a mayor, a singer, an athlete, an actor, a celebrity to gather his people. Only the work of a sovereign God calling and drawing and raising the dead to life and breathing life into his people are what can build his kingdom. I recently read a a missions report of a group of people going over to Europe And there were parts of it that were very interesting, but one part that caught my eye is the one that said the central focus of this mission work, as they seek to go and and, and share the good news, is that they're going to focus on sharing the gospel with what they called culture makers. Culture makers. People with uh, bigger spheres of influence. And here's a very important truth about the kingdom of God, that as God builds his kingdom, he does not need culture makers. If he draws them to himself, then that is what he does. What God wants is the gospel proclaimed. What God wants is disciples made. What God wants is those who believe in Jesus to go into the world wherever they are, looking to him in faith and wanting to see his glory made manifest in their lives. God is not impressed with social standing. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. But we are given this kind of anticipation in this story, aren't we? Synagogue ruler, a lot of influence, 
falling at the feet of Jesus. This could be Jesus' one shining moment. This could make all of the difference in turning around some of the tension that we felt between Jesus and the religious leaders in Israel. If that were the case, Jesus would run in haste to where he's going. This man's daughter is dying. Thus, if that were Jesus' focus of making sure that he helps this man in an important place in society, he wouldn't stop for someone who is merely sick, would he? But that is exactly what Jesus does. This story contrasts for us a man of significance and a woman of shame. We feel this tension because the the story of this woman is enveloped by the story of Jairus. We we naturally contrast them one with the other. This woman is nothing like this man. Consider her condition physically, religiously, socially, financially. This is a physical affliction that we read about this woman that has afflicted her for 12 years. And this is not the first time that we see the the number 12 show up in this passage, is it? Twelve is the age of the young daughter. It's also the time for which this affliction has uh, been experienced by this woman. So we consider the number twelve from two different perspectives in this story. In one sense, twelve years is a very short time to be alive. But twelve years is a very long time to suffer. What has this woman been experiencing for 12 years? Our translation merely says bleeding. This woman has experienced a chronic menstrual bleeding for 12 years, a flow of blood that has been slowly draining the life out of her. It's a serious physical affliction, but perhaps the the greater suffering that she has felt would be religious. It's not just physical, but religious The menstruating woman was considered unclean in the ritual sense. She would have been isolated from the worshiping life of the community for a period of seven days. She was also not allowed to have intimacy with her husband. But this woman would have perpetually been in this situation. Not just seven days, but since this condition started. Cut off from worship, from her husband, this condition made her feel totally an outsider. Imagine having some sort of sickness that would keep you away from worshiping God for 12 years, away from church for 12 years. Socially, this would have affected her as well. She may have been forced to live in uh, an isolation house, a purity house, quarantined off from, from the rest of society so that her uncleanness would not come to be a factor in anyone else's life. At the very least, she would have been the object of scorn. Sadly, at this time in history, menstruating women were were put down and often made to feel worthless. This is true for really all societies historically that we have studied at that time in history. Greeks, Romans, certainly in Israel as well. The outer court of the temple, uh, just to give an example, pretty much everyone was welcome. Uh, foreigners, sojourners, people who were not joined to the nation of Israel. Anyone was welcomed in the outer temple, all except menstruating women. Being a woman can be hard. Being an unclean woman, and that for 12 years, even worse. So we see this woman in contrast to to Jairus. 
Not only that, but she has tried everything to get rid of this condition, and nothing has worked. She has spent all that she has trying to fix what's been going on. With all of this, we can take a look at what she does. She's at the end of her rope, her wit's end, almost out of hope, but Jesus gives her the chance that she needs. We should notice what it is that this woman grasps. Our translation says that it's the edge of Jesus' cloak, the edge of his cloak. But it's not as if she grasps the edge of the material of his robe. She grasps onto something very specific for a very specific reason. The word for what this woman grasps onto is tassel. Tassels were a part of faithful Jewish dress that had been instituted by God way back in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 15, we read this. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. These tassels that were attached to the corners of their garments were weaved rope. And they symbolized a couple things. They were constant reminders of the need to walk in the commandments of God. With each and every step that you took. A reminder to walk in the commandments of God. Not only were they reminders... But they were symbols of law-keeping. They came to symbolize faithful Israelite life. The most obedient Jews. Faithfulness of people like the Pharisees. Thus the Pharisees would wear them in a way to make sure that everyone else would see. It became something to boast in. Thus when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he speaks about their tassels. He says this in Matthew 23. The Pharisees do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their tassels long. These tassels that were part of Jewish dress, they were for the Pharisees a symbol of power, something to boast in, something that symbolized their self-righteousness. But to an honest Israelite, they would have been humbling. To feel them tugging on your clothing with each step as a reminder of all the commandments of Moses. At least in today, I'm I'm not sure what it was back then, but today these Jewish tassels have 613 knots to symbolize the 613 laws of Moses. But why does this woman grasp onto the tassels of Jesus? And why does Luke point out to us that this woman grasps onto the tassels of Jesus? It is because in Jesus she beholds a Savior who is truly righteous. Righteous enough to heal her of her affliction. This is the promise that she grasps. Promise about the Messiah and who he would be and what he would do. The Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah sometimes speak about the fact that He, the Savior who would come, would heal you not only from your overt and explicit sins, but that the Messiah would cleanse you from all of your uncleannesses as well. Ritual impurity, like that which came about from menstruation, was not from overt sin, 
oftentimes, but from natural processes in the body. You can't help some of the things that your body does from time to time, but if you go and read books like Leviticus, it says that some of the things that naturally happen within the body cause you to be ritually unclean. And what does that teach us about the human condition? It creates a deep sense that our separation from God is, not, is a result not from just our explicit sins, but from something within our very nature. There's something from deep within us that causes us separation from God. All of us have this exact problem. It's just that it's magnified, it's felt more acutely in people like this woman. Her life over the past 12 years had been one of separation and isolation and primarily felt that way in relation to God. But in Jesus, she sees the promises of God being fulfilled. In Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet intentionally distinguishes between the Messiah saving us from our transgressions and saving us from our uncleannesses. He will do both. He will cleanse us not just from our explicit sins, but that which goes down to the very depth of our human nature. And he will cleanse that as well. The deepest problems within us that separate us from our creator. And as this woman grasped Jesus' tassels, she was grasping onto the righteousness of the Savior in faith. She reaches out to something which is a beautiful picture for us of faith. Faith in Christ is reaching out to something else because it knows that there's nothing within you that is saving. Her hope and her peace, she knows, will not come from within her. She needs something outside of herself. This is what faith in Christ is is grasping on to something, abandoning all that is within you, looking to the source of righteousness in Jesus Christ, the one who kept the law so that he might come with healing in his wings. In belief, faith can sometimes be a half certainty, can it? I believe that the bus will come in the next five minutes, but faith in Christ is something completely different. It's not half certainty. It's not thinking that something may be true. Faith in Jesus Christ is looking to him as the supremely real, supremely true reality in all of the universe. Without Jesus, this woman's whole life would be darkness and rejects, rejection. Without Jesus, the same is true for us. Wonderful American theologian said this, the dark and gloomy would be the world if we were left to our own devices and had no blessed word of God. Not only God's written and spoken word, the living word of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus is righteous. We also see that he is powerful. He says, power has gone out from me as this woman grasps onto his tassels, healing her immediately. Who touched me, he says. Peter uh, responds by showing Jesus th- that this is a ridiculous question. Master, everyone is touching you. The, the, the crowds are pressing in on you. Everyone around you is touching you. But Jesus knows that this woman has touched him in a different way. She has grasped onto Jesus in true faith. It goes back to why these crowds are following Jesus. 
They want a miraculous sign. They want to see all of the powerful things that he's going to do. In Jesus, they're looking for an earthly genie in their worst moments, perhaps. This woman grasps onto Jesus looking for a heavenly savior. Thus, when this woman knows that she must show herself to Jesus, she is terrified. If she had kept careful watch over her uncleanness, it's not like her touch would have made other people unclean. That's not what we find in the law of Moses. But it would have been a huge taboo to have an unclean woman with this sort of condition going around in the midst of a large crowd. She's terrified. What's Jesus going to say? But Jesus does not scold her. Jesus does not add to her scorn or her shame. He commends her faith. Her faith has saved her. The word there, I think, in our translation is healed. It's the word for saved. Her faith has saved her. No matter how sinful, unclean, isolated, separated from God you are, Jesus commends true and saving faith. Faith that abandons the self and looks to the Savior, the prophet, priest, and king for forgiveness and salvation and cleansing. A faith that grasps onto his righteousness and not your own. That is what saves you. All that she had was faith. And then Jesus shows how uh, this faith is looked upon with deepest compassion and love. There's no magic in the tassels of Jesus. It's not even her own faith that provides the power of salvation. Her faith merely receives the blessings of this wonderful compassionate, gracious Savior. But all the time, Jesus has been losing time with the synagogue ruler. Imagine being Jairus and seeing this go on and saying, why are we stopping? My daughter needs you. My daughter needs you. This man of significance, his desire slowed down by this woman of scorn and shame, and thus somebody comes from his house and says, don't bother this teacher anymore. Your daughter has already died. And Jesus turns to him and, say, and says, just believe, just believe, and she will be saved. In the same way that simple faith saves the woman, so it's reiterated to this man of significance and stature. It's not his standing in society that saves his daughter, is it? If Jesus would have ran right to his house as soon as he asked, if he would have ignored the woman along the way, then everyone would have assumed it's because of the the place in society that Jairus has that his daughter was healed by Jesus. It's because of who he is. But it's not. Same exact exhortation given to this man as that which saves the bleeding woman. Just believe. And your daughter will be saved. Jesus arrives. He encounters uh, the mourners, many of whom are probably hired out professional mourners. That would uh, be commonplace in that day. Also, seems like there probably are a lot of professional mourners here because they pretty easily go from uh, wailing and weeping to laughing and mocking Jesus when Jesus says, this girl is not dead, she's asleep. But what Jesus teaches us by saying that is, That he changes the truth about what death means. That's what Jesus does, doesn't he? He changes the truth about what death means. These mourners have not seen what Jesus can do 
with a raging storm on the mighty seas. They have not seen what Jesus can do with a legion of demons who are possessing a man living amongst the tombs and in caves. We've been finding out in Luke that Jesus silences the voices of worldly powers that seem to have the last word. That's the crisis that every human being will encounter at some point. You will encounter a worldly power that seems to have the last word. That seems to be ultimate, but that which seems most ultimate and lasting is no longer the last word because of Jesus. This does not mean that death is not painful or disorienting or confusing or awful. It doesn't mean that the same can be felt with many of the trials of this life. We still walk through the valley of death's shadow, but in Christ, death is transformed, isn't it? It's transformed to a relative Sleep. In Christ, we have a savior, a family member, a bedside friend who has come to vanquish the enemies of sin and death that go down to the very core of our being. The crowds that have been pressing in upon Jesus, they, they, they do not believe all of this about him. They follow him because he performs signs and wonders. Probably the reason that Jesus wants this miracle to be private. Peter, James, and John can come in. The parents can come in. But Jesus does not want to do this in the sight of everyone. He's doing that to combat as much as he can the worldly kingdom perspective that people have about Jesus. He wants to show them that his path to kingship is not glorious and pain-free. He must enter it through suffering. This is also why Jesus will tell Jairus and his wife to not go and spread the news about all that he has done. Jesus must suffer before he is glorified, but in this moment he is most concerned with showing compassion towards the faithful. He takes the hand of this young girl. We see all throughout the Old Testament and even in our own intuition, we see that taking the hand is a sign of great love and tender affection. No moment in life, perhaps as sweet as a parent who can take a young child's hand, but Jesus can do this in an even different way, in a way that will last forever. Jesus does this to the faithful. This is how much Jesus loves you, believer. Kids, this is how much Jesus loves you. Look at this wonderful peak into the blessings of being part of God's covenant family. Jesus loves you with tender love and affection, a love with which he will never let you go. Jesus then leads this young girl up out of the darkness of death and back into the land of the living. This story shows us the power of God to save through Jesus in a couple of different ways. It's a picture of what God can do spiritually as well. In John chapter 10, our Lord said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. The voice of our Savior beckoning us to life. Just like he says to this woman, to this young girl, Young girl, arise. My child, arise. Jesus goes on to say in John 10, I give my sheep eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
It's a picture of Jesus making his people new by the word of his power, by the power of his spirit. In the Gospel of Luke, whenever you see the word power, it's usually being tied to the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is what we see here when Jesus says uh, about the bleeding woman, power has gone out from me. When he beckons this young girl to life by the word of his power, the Holy Spirit attending to the work and the ministry of Jesus, a picture of what he does spiritually, but also a picture of what he does physically, ultimately, renewing all things. He will take us by the hand if we just believe. He will take us by the hand and he will lead us up. Just believe. This is how much Jesus loves you. One of the greatest, uh, in terms of volume of writing, theologians who lived in the last century. It wrote, written millions of words, so many thousands, tens of thousands of pages. And this theologian was asked at the end of his life, what is the greatest truth that you ever learned, your whole life of study, your whole life of contemplating God? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This is how much he loves you. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you. Just believe. Believing is not half certainty. Belief in Christ, faith in Christ, is actually how we carry out our whole existence. We believe in Christ as we work, as we love, as we hope, as we create, as we worry, as we live, as we die. Belief, faith in Christ, defines all that we do. As Jesus summons us to believe in him, just believe and you will be saved. As he summons us to believe in him, we realize that believing in him involves our everything. It redefines us. It recreates us in terms of who we are. We must be totally shaped in every way by belief. Belief that he loves you. Belief that he can save you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that we find. By your spirit, may you shape us, mold us as we believe in our Savior, as he summons us to to him, as he judges us in his presence, as we realize in, in the sphere of salvation all that you call us to. Keep us faithful, faithful, looking to Jesus, believing in him always. In Christ's name, amen. Respond together in song, brothers and sisters, and sing number.